Well, let's start. I'm going to pray for us, and then, then we'll dive in. You can see we're on Ezra and Nehemiah, and we got four this and three other lessons, and next the next trimester, I'm not sure what, what the other class will be, but I will continue and do part two of this, so if you want to continue with us, we'll do the prophets next, so... All right, well, let's let's pray together. Father, we thank you for another day of corporate worship, for the blessing of being together as brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the church of our Lord. And we thank you for our one gospel, Lord, of our one baptism, of our one God and Father. We thank you for the one spirit that you've put within us, who unites us to, to Christ and unites us to one another in the one family of God. And we praise you for all the blessings of salvation, our justification, our our sanctification and adoption and the hope of heaven. And we know that we have every reason not only to thank you, praise you, but also to sit under the teaching of your word, to joyfully receive the instruction that you have for us there, both in terms of the reminder of who you are and what you've done for us through your Son, and also your calling upon our lives. And so we do pray that you would uh, open our hearts to receive and understand the truths of your word this morning, especially from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We pray that you give us a better grasp of these books, and, and through this exercise, a better grasp of the Old Testament as we continue to work through it in our class so that we could be wise for salvation and equipped for every good work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, here we go. Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to start with some introductory matters here. First thing to note is just that in your Hebrew Bible, if you're using the Bible that Jesus and the apostles were using, it would have been one book altogether. So we're going to treat it as one book this morning, Um, even though in our English Bibles it's been separated out. And then also, just a little bit about the sources. It is fairly obvious when you read through this book that the author not only wrote original material, but also that he utilized a number of sources. So, for instance, many scholars have put it this way, that you see memoirs that must have been written down uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra being a scribe, a Jewish scribe, and Nehemiah, the cupbearer for a per, for the Persian king, both Jews, obviously, but living in exile, because in much of the material, and you can see the references there in Ezra 8 through 10, Nehemiah 1 through 7, and then again in 12 through 13, you see Nehemiah and Ezra speaking in the first person, saying, I did this, I went here, I heard this, I prayed thus. And so, you could tell it's like a personal memoir, which is actually pretty unique in the scripture when you think about it. Not often do you see the author writing in the first person, I. So that's why we've often described it as their written memoirs are in here. And then also pre-existing lists. For instance, in Ezra chapter 2, you have a list or list with numbers of all of the Jews that came out of exile. I mean, you have lists from every different clans and also you have letters letters from the persian king to the post-exilic community letters from from people in the post-exilic 
area writing back to the Persian king. And those have been preserved, obviously, in writing, and then they're included in this book. So there are lots of different sources that are that make up Ezra and Nehemiah. So obviously the author, assuming that the authors of the book would have been perhaps Ezra and Nehemiah themselves, they certainly would have been utilizing multiple different sources, pre-existing sources as they compiled the book, which again, as we've seen, is not unusual in the Old Testament books. And then also in terms of the author, I mean, when you step back and you look at it, it's clear that most of the material in these books was written by Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, the question would be, you know, is there any other editor involved with arranging the materials? And that is somewhat mysterious. It it could have been Ezra and Nehemiah that, that produced the whole book, or it could be that these written memoirs from Ezra and Nehemiah, and perhaps many of the lists and the letters were preserved by them and that they were all arranged by some other author. But probably they, I mean, we can at least say that the vast majority of the material in these books was written, was produced by Ezra and Nehemiah themselves. And then the date. It seems pretty clear that Ezra and Nehemiah were, were written fairly soon after the events that they spoke about, especially, obviously, since much of the materials produced by Ezra and Nehemiah themselves, it would have been produced during their lifetime. So while we were not exactly sure when the book was, you know, in its final form assembled, we do know that most of the material would have dated to the, not long after the events that they talk about. So Remember that in when you're in BC, you're counting from higher numbers down to lower numbers as you get toward year zero, and then in AD you start counting up. So somewhere between 540 and 400 BC would have been the time period here. And uh, much of the uh, events and people um, in the book match extra biblical records as well, so that you know that there's many ways that scholars have been able to date the events in the book. The recipients, obviously, primarily would have been, I mean, we could say in general, the community of Israelites, some of whom, many of whom, stayed in exile. So you think of a book like Esther, and that gives you a window into those exiles that stayed in in exile and continue to function there. But a remnant of them did return to the land of Israel, And those are probably the focus in terms of who the book was written to. So you would say the post-exilic. So post-exilic just means after Cyrus's decree that the Jews could return out of exile, and a remnant of them did. That community that returned back, that's what we mean when we say the post-exilic Israelite community. Okay, going having living back in the land, but still under the rule of foreign powers, you know, first Babylon, then, well, first Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. Okay, in terms of the what kind of literature, obviously most of it is story, historical narrative, like we've seen in so many of the Old Testament books, but it also includes many other kinds of literature, memoirs, like we said, you know, almost like, almost they feel like a personal journal of Ezra and Nehemiah, lists, both in terms of there's lists of the priests and Levites who came back out of exile. There's lists of the various 
lists of people who signed a particular document, lists of, full of numbers, of the numbers of exiles that returned. So there's all kinds of lists. And then there's also letters, which, as, we, as I mentioned before, letters from the Persian king to, to the exilic community giving instructions, etc. So it's, it's a very interesting book in that regard. It, it's a collection of all kinds of different materials, even though it's all put within the broader picture of a story, a historical narrative. Okay, just a little bit of the historical background. That's a, a drawing, a rendering of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So you all remember that it was the Babylonians who invaded and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and led off, finally, the last king, Davidic king, into exile, along with most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And all, all that was left in Judah at that point in, in the land of Israel was a small remnant. And many of those were taken, went down to, to Egypt and perished there. So the Babylonians took them into exile, but it wasn't long. It wasn't long in terms of history before Babylon essentially gave way without any kind of great battle, just through political shenanigans, uh, ended up being taken over by the Persian Empire. Sometimes you hear the Medo-Persian Empire because it involved Persians. It was the Persians and the Medes sort of together that conquered Babylon. Or And it, like I said, it, it didn't actually take a battle to do it. Sort of like, you know, Russia annexing Crimea without any kind of major clash back in whatever it was, 2014, is sort of what happened. And so you have Cyrus was the first emperor of Persia after that event, after they took over Babylon. And uh, so just a little, I want to give you a little bit of the historical framework in which this took place, which we can gather not only from the scriptures themselves, but also from extra biblical historical documents. So the first siege of Jerusalem. You remember, if you, if you read, for instance, the book of Jeremiah, or if you read First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, which tell you about the fall of Jerusalem, you remember that there were actually two sieges of Jerusalem and two groups of exiles, right? So there was the first siege of Jerusalem in which the Babylonians came in and finally the Davidic king at that time, who I believe was Jehoiakim, just basically gave up, finally gave up the city, he was taken away into exile, and there was an f- initial group of exiles, which would have included people like Ezekiel and Daniel, right? And then the Babylonians set up a puppet king, king that they thought they could control, but who was still a Davidic heir, and that was Zedekiah. And then Zedekiah, being the two-bit despot that he was and a fool, listened to the false prophets and rebelled against the king <laughs> That which led to Babylonians coming back and saying, okay, this time we're going to do the job right. There was like a two-year siege, horrific siege of Jerusalem. And they finally broke down the walls, burned the city to the ground, destroyed the temple, and took everyone off. And there was no more Davidic king, right? So it was essentially the complete destruction of Jerusalem. This is what you're reading about when you read the book of Lamentations, right? Just the utter devastation of that final destruction but and that was 586 but 605 was the first wave and it was at this point that the prophet jeremiah 
had predicted that they were going to be in captivity for how many years? Do you remember? 70 years. 70 years, right? So we'll look at a couple verses here. Jeremiah 25, 11 says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then he says, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. And then if you go over to 29, verse 10, which many of you know, 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans not, you know. But 29, 10 uh, actually says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Right? So, 70 years from the first fall, from the first siege until the return. About 70 years later, and, and here we have these problems with dating, like when did the 70 years start? When did it end? We're not sure, but you can see that about 70 years later is when the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, after he had taken over Babylon, and he releases the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. This is about, this is, most scholars will date that to 539 BC as a pretty firm date, knowing when Cyrus began his reign. And this is what you see in Ezra chapter 1, 1 through 4. And let's just, if we look there, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the prophecy we just read, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, etc. So he... This is the famous edict of Cyrus where he released the Jews to return. And you see it ref referred to here. That was 539 B.C. is when that happened. And then you have uh, Darius becoming king of Persia in about 522 B.C. And it wasn't long after that that you had the temple in Jerusalem completed and dedicated most most scholars will date that then to 515 BC because the text of Ezra tells you what year of Darius's reign it happened, right? So if it if he started to reign in 522, you could date the completion of the temple rebuilding, the rebuilding of the temple and its dedication to 515 BC. And this is what you see in Ezra 6, 13 through 18, is the, the completion and dedication of the temple. Artaxerxes becomes king of Persia in 465. And this is a little bit confusing because back in Ezra 4, there was another Artaxerxes. And it turns out there was like four Artaxerxes, kings of Persia, that, that were kings of Persia at different times. So it's somewhat confusing as to which king is which because you had sort of, you know, it's sort of like saying Ratzinger, right, who was the cardinal. But then do you remember what was his name when he became pope? Yeah, Benedict. So you're like, well, is it Benedict or is it Ratzinger? Well, it's both, but there's these sort of title names. And then there's so similar with the kings of Persia. It, it can be confusing <laughs> perusing the historical documents, knowing who's, who is who. But 
there is a king. One of the Artaxerxes becomes king of Persia in 465 BC. You can imagine, you know, you've read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Oftentimes, the reigns of kings didn't last very long, right? And and that was for a variety of different reasons. Maybe they didn't become king till they were older and didn't live long. But oftentimes, there is all kinds of shenanigans that go on in terms of uh, parties trying to take over power and new kings being installed, etc. So. It's not long before Artaxerxes becomes king. And then Nehemiah going up to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls takes place in the reign of Artaxerxes. And you see that in Nehemiah 2 verse 1. In the ninth month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, is when Nehemiah asks to be released from his job as a cupbearer, at least temporarily, to go back to Jerusalem because he had heard that the city walls were still lying in ruin. Okay, so this kind of gives you a little bit of the background. The walls of Jerusalem would have been completed then, according to the text, in uh, 440 BC, when you look at Nehemiah 6, and you look down at verse 15. It says, So the walls was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in in 52 days. And uh, essentially... Actually, I can't remember where they got the date of the completion of the wall. I think somewhere in the text it says that it happened five years after it was started, but I can't remember now where that was. So this is a little bit of the historical time frame. gives you a little bit of a sense. It took place during the reign of successive kings or emperors of the Persian Empire. All right. Any questions at this point about, about this before we dive into the actual text itself? Okay. All right, so here's what I want you to do. If you would, just open up to Ezra chapter 1, and and I want you to just sort of look at the text as we're walking through it, and you'll be able to see, even from looking at your headings, and as you scan over the material, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. I want to just give you an overview of the book, what's in the book. And again, I say one book because originally... Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, and when you start actually thinking about it, even though there are two figures, Ezra and Nehemiah, the material flows quite nicely <laughs> one into another. Um, you can see how it would have been one book. It doesn't need to be broken into two. Okay, so first of all, Ezra 1 through 6, what you see in this, in this opening section is you see... Uh, the Israelites returning to the land out of exile and rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So Cyrus releases the Jews to return to Israel and rebuild the temple in chapter 1. And you can see even in your heading probably says something like the proclamation of Cyrus. And what's interesting about this is that you see that the Lord actually stirred up the heart of Cyrus to release the Jews. This wasn't upon the request of Ezra. This was something that the Lord did. In fact, Ezra doesn't even pop into the story until chapter 7, right? So this is the Lord stirring up the king of Persia to release the Jews so that they can go back to the land and rebuild the temple, right? So the Lord had done this. And in fact, it's interesting, some of you are probably aware that if you read the prophecies of Isaiah, Isaiah predicted, the Lord predicted, foretold through Isaiah that he was going to raise up his servant Cyrus by name. He names him to allow the Jews to go back. And this is, these are the types of things, by the way, that liberal scholars look at and they say, see, 
it couldn't have been Isaiah that wrote that part because Isaiah lived before these events and there's no way he could have known the future, right? And this is where you see that if you deny the possibility of prophecy, uh, that God who knows the future because he plans the future could reveal it ahead of time, if you deny that from the beginning, well, then you can't even believe that Isaiah wrote all that's in Isaiah. And this is where you get, you know, first Isaiah and then second Isaiah and third Isaiah. Uh, all these supposedly different authors that wrote different parts of the book. But if you take it at face value that the whole book was, are the oracles of Isaiah, then what you see is that God actually predicted ahead of time that by name he was going to take a Persian king. And remember, by this time, the Babylonians hadn't even sacked Jerusalem yet. Uh, he was going to raise up a Persian king named Cyrus to instigate the release of his people out of exile. Because he would already knew that his people were going to go into exile, right? He already... <laughs> revealed that through the prophet um, and then he's already predicting their release through Cyrus. So it's not a surprise then when you come here and you see that that happens, right? So that's chapter one and then um, you have in chapter two numbers, right? When you scan the text you see a bunch of numbers. You have uh, the sons of so-and-so and then there's a number next to it and basically what you have is some list that someone put together of all the different people from each clan or, or family uh, group that came back out of exile. It would have been helpful if they, you know, told you the tribe's name, right? But you see instead sort of fam- familial names or clan names, and then you also see certain identifications, like it does say Levites, priests, temple servants, sons of Sol- Solomon's servants, so royal officials, etc., tells you a little bit about who these people were. And there is an emphasis, again, upon obviously sending back a group of exiles to rebuild the temple upon Levites and priests, etc., who would who would serve in that rebuilt temple. And then in chapter 3, you have them returning, and you have them uh, beginning to rebuild the altar. They start with the altar in chapter 3. And then you have, in chapter 4, adversaries popping up who... They, they begin rebuilding the temple at the end of chapter 3, and then you have these adversaries that pop up because they don't want to see this happen, the people that live in the region who are not Jews, and they write back to the new king of, of Persia after, after Cyrus, who is Ahasuerus, and they write to him, and then it says, in the days of Artaxerxes, so it seems like either that's the same king by a different title or a different king. So again, this king doesn't, doesn't know exactly what happened under Cyrus. So he hears, oh, they're rebuilding this temple. He hears all these accusations, and he says, well, then put a stop to it, right? And so they, the, building, the building stops after this, this event, but the Jews resume their building in chapter 5 under the ministry at the urging of two prophets. And you recognize their name in chapter 5, verse 1. Who, who are the two prophets? Haggai or Haggai and Zechariah. So these are two writing prophets. We have their oracles, some of their oracles actually in the writings of the Old Testament or in the Old Testament scriptures, the books of Haggai and Zechariah. So they actually told them, no, you know, keep going. And then God essentially worked it out uh, so that King Darius, in basically a supernatural fashion, discovers the original decree 
of Cyrus and says, okay, well, let them follow through. And so they they end up finishing the letter or the the temple in chapter 6, and then they celebrate the first Passover at the end of chapter 6. And then when you get, so that's the first section of the book is the Israelites returning really under the leadership of Zerubbabel, who would have been the, the heir to the Davidic throne. And they finish, they rebuild the temple despite opposition. Now, when you reach chapter 7, you are getting into a new section of the book. And here we see Ezra the scribe's first-hand account and his memoirs, so to speak, of him ministering in this post-exilic community after the temple is rebuilt and teaching them to obey the law of God. So the book of the law would have been preserved, but obviously they've been living in exile for a long time. They rebuilt the temple, but they need to know how to live now in the presence of God, right? You don't live in the presence of God and just live however you want. God's old covenant people were required to order their lives in a particular way as they lived in his presence. So part of, it would have been natural as you have now rebuilt the temple, now we need to teach the people from the book of the law how to live. Right, And so here we have in uh, chapter 7, when you start moving through in chapter 7, you see that Ezra is sent uh, by under, under the reign of Artaxerxes to go back to Jerusalem and to teach the people how to, basically to set things in order with respect to the people of God living now in Jerusalem and the, after the temple is rebuilt. And in this section, you actually have a letter of that Artaxerxes, that Artaxerxes sent. And you see there in verse 12 of chapter 7, Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace, and now I make a decree, etc. And you have this actual letter contained in the book. So next you have Ezra's journey to Jerusalem. So he's been sent to Jerusalem by the king. And then you have this journey. So this is an interesting part of the narrative where he basically tells the king, the Lord will protect us. But then he starts realizing he's traveling a long distance in un, you know, difficult territory with, with all this gold and silver that he's bringing back to the temple. So imagine in that day, you know, like even today you have an armored car if you're going to carry some great treasure. But in that day, you know, where there was much less security on the roads, this was a, a big thing. And so they pray, they ask God for protection, and they make it. They make this journey. They successfully come. He deposits the money in the temple. That's going to be used for the for sacrifices and, and other temple matters. But then he finds out in chapter 9, he finds out immediately from people that are there that he's warned that the post-exilic community has already been sinning against the Lord greatly by beginning to intermarry with the inhabitants of the land. And you see that he's grieved by this, and he offers a prayer of confession. So it's in Ezra and Nehemiah, you actually have multiple prayers uh, offered by the people, by Ezra, by Nehemiah. So he confesses the people's sin to the Lord in chapter 10. And then at the end of chapter 10, he actually includes, imagine this, a list of the people who were guilty of intermarriage with foreign women. And you can see their names are forever inscribed in the scripture 
uh, because of their guilt, which is very interesting. It's sort of like Ananias and Sapphira, you know. Or think of uh, when Paul called out Judea and Syntyche by name in his letter to the Philippians, and now they've been passed down through history for these infamous deeds. Okay, so that ends chapters 7 through 10, where it's essentially Ezra setting things in order, making this journey, bringing things to the to the temple, and then dealing with this issue of sin. The, the issue of him teaching the people the law is going to come, is going to be completed in later on in the book of Nehemiah, which again is, it's all one book. But, and so we'll see more on that subject later on. But when you come to, when you come to the next section, which is Nehemiah 1 through 7 in our English Bibles, you see a new section arises. And this is a section in which Nehemiah now, a new character that you're introduced to, who turns out to be basically a high official in, he's a Jew living in exile in Persia still. He hasn't, he didn't return with the first wave of exiles, but he's, he's like Daniel, you know, like a, a very high official in the Persian administration. He's a cupbearer to the king. Now, of all the things that you needed to be in order to be a cupbearer to the king, what was the most important quality? You think? I mean, cheerful. cheerful. Okay, well, that was part of it. Trustworthy. Trustworthy, right? I mean, what's the whole point of having a cupbearer, right? It's, it's sort of like a food taster. I'm sure Vladimir Putin has multiple layers of food tasters, right? <laughs> People that are going to eat the first bite of your foods before you to make sure that it's not poison. So. A cupbearer is known for being someone that the king trusts his life with, right? So he's he's clearly a, a man of integrity, a man whom the king trusts, a man who the king values his his position, and yet he's a Jew. He's a Jew that has is living as an exile there, and so this is who Nehemiah is. And when you start into Nehemiah one, you see that he hears word. He inquires about that community of exiles. And he hears word back that uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the, the temple has already been rebuilt, but the city of Jerusalem still lies in ruins. And this greatly grieves Nehemiah, disturbs him, and he begins to think, I need to go. I, I need to go and try to lead the people to rebuild the fallen city. And so he, he prays to God that God would give him favor with the, with the king. Because it would have been no small thing for the king to lose his cupbearer, right? And so it would have taken an act of God to intervene and give Nehemiah favor with the king to be released of his duties to go. And so Nehemiah is permitted to go in chapter 2. And you see that he's sent to Jerusalem. And when he comes, you see this. Most of the time, if you Google Nehemiah, what you'll see is a picture of a man on a horse traveling around walls that are broken down, right? And that's drawn from this scene in chapter 2 where in the night, in secret, he takes a few men and, and he rides around the city and he examines the walls. And then uh, chapter 3, he begins to rebuild the walls. And he's, he, he's a leader. He leads the post-exilic community to begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. By the way, you remember in the prophet Haggai, I believe, 
this is spoken of where God rebukes Israel because actually I think it was with respect to the temple, but there was an element here in rebuilding the temple. And I would say the same principle would apply with respect to the walls that the, that the Israelites neglected both of those things. Now, why did you think that they would neglect rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem? Right. Yeah. Maybe not forget, but, or perhaps it passes out of mind, but, but you get there. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Nehemiah also rebuke some of the people that were there for taxing and enslaving their fellow Jews? Right. And so they probably ran out of resources to. Finish. Right. There was oppression that went on, corruption that led to oppression. So, and and remember, this is not the days of Starbucks drive-thrus, right? This is the days of I might die tomorrow of disease, you know, or. The days of I live in a stone hut on a dirt floor and I basically work every day for my bread. I mean, this is the average life of normal people. And so it didn't take long before the idea of taking on these large tasks was just that it just seemed insurmountable. And do you remember how the Lord rebuked them through um, Haggai when he said, look, here you are working on your own house when my house lies in ruins, you know? No wonder you're experiencing these hardships because he said, basically, I'm judging you for this. He says, if you want to experience my blessing, start by rebuilding my house before you rebuild your houses. And so there is an element of moral. This is a reflection of of moral and spiritual decay already. Right here they are. They're come back out of exile. When you read the prophets about the return out of exile, it's a very great picture. But the reality of them coming out of exile at this stage was that they were just the same as before. And that's part of what you're to see in this book is that corruption, sin, neglect led to them not rebuilding the temple right away. It took the urging of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and not rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem right away. It took the urging of Nehemiah. And so he begins to lead them to rebuild the wall. And it's, and it's difficult. Already opponents, Tobiah and Sanballat. But these names really ring with their ominous. These are the great opponents that were raised up before by, uh, against the people to threaten them, to try to deceive them and trick them any way they could to try to keep them from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But through Nehemiah's leadership, the work continues And then in the midst of it, in chapter 5, you see that Nehemiah is also cleaning up corruption. He stops the Jewish nobles from oppressing the poor. So you had Jewish, wealthy Jewish people basically imposing interest and and, and other kinds of uh, unjust practices so that poorer people were having to sell their lands to the nobles, selling even themselves into slavery. And when when they see that there's a strong godly leader there, they cry out to Nehemiah and he confronts the nobles because all of this was in violation of the old covenant law, right? And so you see him cleaning up corruption in chapter five and chapter six, you see that despite threats so that they, the final tactic was to threaten Nehemiah's life, to try to get him to flee, to try to get him to stop, but he doesn't give in and, and despite all this opposition, they finish 
the city of the, the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter six, right? And so this is a sort of a climactic chapter. Nehemiah chapter seven ends with him now that this has been completed, beginning to turn his attention to the habitation of Jerusalem, like who's going to live there and who's going to try to put in, set into order things like the service of the Levites and the priests in the temple. And so he begins to look at the records. And you see in chapter 7, a list of returned exiles. And he's looking at the records and seeing uh, the who it was uh, that had returned out of exile so that he then begins to put into order various things after after the walls had been rebuilt. Okay, and then in chapter... I know I'm skipping some things here, but can't cover every detail. In chapters 8 through 10, which is sort of, I believe, the last... I don't know, there's a little bit after this, but one of the last sections in the book, you have Ezra, the scribe, re-emerging on the scene. And... Here is where you have this famous incident where Ezra, they set up the wooden platform, right? You could see it in the picture, a rendering of it. And he begins to read the law from the book of the law and explain its sense. So a lot of times when you talk about, you know, at preaching conferences, they'll dust off Ezra chapter 8 and show Ezra preaching from the law, you know, reading it and then giving its sense. And as the people heard, what are they doing in the picture this is what happens. They're, they're convicted of their sin. They realize how far they have strayed from the commands of God. And, and they're also reading in the book judgments if they do stray, you know. And so there's a sense of conviction. There's a sense of almost despair. Like, how can we move forward? But what you end up seeing is that the reading of the law is really coming in the context of a broader covenant renewal. So the law is read and preached in chapter 8. The people are convicted of their sin. Chapter 9, they confess their sin to God, and they actually renew in writing their commitment to now try to keep his covenant as a new generation in the land. And uh, when you look at, you remember I talked about how covenant documents often had a history of the dealings between the two parties, and then a covenant renewal, often it was put in writing. Well, look, if you read through the years, or through the, the chapter, chapter 9 actually recounts a history of God's dealing with them. And then finally, at the end in verse 38, it says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes and our Levites and our priests. So, this is not a new covenant. This is a renewal of their original covenant. And then in chapter 10, you actually have the, the names of all the people that signed this covenant renewal document. So this is a positive thing. In chapter in the rest of chapter 10, you actually see some of the obligations that they were committing themselves to, to do as part of this covenant renewal. And then that takes you through the end of that section, and you get to... The last section of the book is 11 through 13. And in this section, Nehemiah, we have another sort of section of Nehemiah's memoirs where he gives a firsthand account of him trying to set things in order among this post-exilic community because good stuff has happened. They've rebuilt the city. They've renewed their covenant with God. But it is interesting that the book ends on sort of a sour note. And, and what you end up seeing in this last section is that Nehemiah describes 
he starts out in chapter 11 by describing the various people who lived in in uh, Jerusalem at the time. He uh, in chapter 12 he identifies the Levites and the priests who'd remained in the land and he sets them up for service. And then in chapter 13, the very last chapter of the book, he identifies various areas where Israel had sinned grievously. Now, I want you to think about this. If, if you're thinking about the history of Israel and you're thinking about the th- you know, what had led them into exile in the first place, what was the sort of primal sin? Okay, you, I know you're going to say idolatry, but what was before that? What led to the idolatry? Intermarriage. Intermarriage with the inhabitants of the land. Well, it's interesting that the book ends by telling us that this had happened all over again. It wasn't the only sin that they identified in this in this last chapter, but it was one of the sins. So you see that they had let the family of Tobiah, one of their great opponents, live in the temple. He had apparently married someone in the community and he was a powerful man, and they'd actually let him, his family sort of set up, have a little part of the temple where he was living, a Gentile. They, they were not giving the tithes that they needed to support the Levites. So the Levites had to go back to their lands to work for their own provision. And they were working on the Sabbath day. And then lastly, they were in, in intermarrying with the inhabitants of the land. And that's what you see the book um, ends with. And you have Nehemiah seeking to deal with these these treacheries against God in the people. So, when you come to the end of the book, it just ain't pretty. You, you, you come to the end and you're like, wait a second. Intermarriage, after Joshua led to idolatry, which led them, this whole history, which eventually landed them in exile. They, God leads them out of exile, back to the land. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild Jerusalem. And... They're starting to intermarry with the inhabitants of the land again, right? And so you get this sense of like nothing's changed, and and that that is appropriate, right? When when you think about the rabbis and the writings of the intertestamental period between the last Old Testament book and the first New Testament book, you have all these Jewish writings, and it's clear from those writings that the Jews understood that even though they were back in the land, that they hadn't they hadn't experienced the true return out of exile that the prophets had spoke of, right? <laughs> they were back in the land, but they were still in exile in a sense, right? And, 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 and that nothing had really changed with the people. It was the same stiff-necked stubbornness that they saw that led them there in the first place. And, though, and so the, the book is meant to leave you with that sense of like something more is needed. And so that's where, where I want to go now with the message of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. How many years span are we talking about from when they came back to this point where they're already intermarrying and losing the language and things like that? Yeah. I mean, not a long time. Let me go back to that. Is it a generation or less? I mean, I think you're talking about essentially (laughs) 605 to the walls of Jerusalem being 440 BC. So, I mean, I think you would have been talking about roughly, you know, 200 year period here, 150 to 200 year period here. So yeah, I mean, there's generations here and and you can understand, right? I mean, 
Just think of where we've gone as a nation since our founding. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're a blip on the radar screen compared to this. And, and so things can change very rapidly. But yeah, I mean, I think that when with the decree of Cyrus, you could imagine that the people were thinking, this is it. This is what the prophets foretold. And in a sense, it was, right? Jeremiah said after 70 years. But the prophets had also said there'd be a new Davidic king, a new temple, a new, a new temple where you know God would dwell in their midst, and a new Davidic king who would reign to the ends of the earth, and the people would experience you know wine flowing down from the hills, and the the there'd be so much produce that they you know they, they'd be overwhelmed with plenty, and they'd be filled with joy and all this stuff. And you get to the end of this book, and you're like, well, some things have come to pass. <laughs> But this isn't what the prophets were talking about, right? So I, this is where I want to go. What is the message of Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and how does it relate with the New Testament? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah describe a partial fulfillment of the prophetic hope of future restoration out of exile. So remember, like during the period of the kings and, and chronic or kings and chronicles and the kingdom period, you had these prophets arising like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you can read sections of their oracles where they're re, they're predicting an, an exile, but they're also predicting a restoration on the other side of exile, right? You get to Ezra and Nehemiah, and you have what seems like the beginning of that. And there is a sense, the 70 years that Jeremiah talked about, had come, but, and they had returned out of exile back to the land. So, Jeremiah 29.10 was fulfilled. Certain things that the prophets had predicted did come true, but in a limited way, right? So, a remnant had returned to the land, like the prophets had spoken of. The temple was rebuilt. Jerusalem was rebuilt. And the people had, in you know, at times, you see the covenant renewal at the end of Nehemiah, had repented and renewed their covenant with God. And then in the midst of this, I would say that if you're hearing a sermon series in Ezra and Nehemiah, you're going to see a lot of different things that we can learn from the book, right? We learn the faithfulness of God to his promises. He had done what he had said. After 70 years, he, through Cyrus, his servant, had allowed his people to come back. So his promises, or his faithfulness to his promises, the sovereignty of God over the nations, which is really a theme in all of the, you know, like Ezekiel, Daniel, and Ezra and Nehemiah, you see this emphasis upon the fact that, you know, the king's hearts are in the hands of God, right? He turns them whatever way. He, he stirred up Cyrus's heart, the emperor of the whole known world at the time, to let them go back and rebuild the temple, right? So God's sovereignty over the nations is a big theme. The power of God's word and scripture, so that whole section where Ezra reads the scripture and their hearts are convicted by the reading of the word, the teaching of the word, right? So that's a theme that you see in the book. The importance of preaching and teaching the word as the primary means by which God changes hearts and minds. The importance of prayer. There are multiple prayers where you see, you know, Ezra or Nehemiah or the people confessing their sins to God, crying out to him for deliverance for help, the importance of godly leaders, right? I mean, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, all of this show that in God's covenant community, God gifts his community with leaders who are specially equipped by his spirit to lead the people in obedience to God. 
and the character of, le of leaders. So when you look at a man like Ezra and you look at Nehemiah, you learn a lot about the type of character that a godly leader ought to have. You know, a love for God, a, a faith in his word, a, a courage to do what's right, regardless of the cost. You know, like they're threatening Nehemiah's life and he's like, I don't care. We're pressing on, you know, or he told the people, OK, if they're going to attack us, then take your sword in one hand and your 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 shovel in the other. Right. And so that kind of godly strength and and integrity, how he would not compromise um, no matter what. So these are all lessons that you we learn from the book of Nehemiah. But as you think of, okay, why did God put Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible now that we have the completed canon of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, what is the contribution of Ezra and Nehemiah in the bigger picture of the storyline of the Bible, right? What do they do? Well, um, they, they certainly tell you about, they, they give you this picture of a limited fulfillment of the prophet the prophetic hope so you have this prophetic hope of a return out of exile a rebuilding of the temple a rebuilding of jerusalem a reestablishment of the davidic kingdom etc and you know much like the uh much like the many events and institutions in the history of israel provide a sort of prefiguring of, of what's to come in christ right so you think of the whole sacrificial system, the priesthood, or even the Davidic kingdom. But each of those leaves you with a sense that eh, this, is, this shows us something of what we need, but these guys ain't it, right? So the priests keep dying. The sacrifices need to be made again and again. The temple is torn down. The Davidic kings are descend into corruption and are eventually removed. So... They show us something of what we need. We need a temple. We need a priest. We need sacrifices. We need a Davidic king. But we need something better than these. And, and there's a sense in which I think that Ezra and Nehemiah is giving you a picture, a, a limited, partial fulfillment of the prophetic hope that prefigures and anticipates a greater fulfillment of the prophetic hope. So you have a remnant returning out of exile. But they're still under the rule of the Persians. That certainly wasn't what the prophets foresaw. You have the line of David is preserved. You have Zerubbabel, he's of the line of David. So the line of the kings has been preserved, but there's no king installed in Jerusalem. And the kingdom has not been reestablished. You have Jerusalem is rebuilt, which is something that the prophets talked about. But it's not really <laughs> the glory that the prophets foresaw. Or the temple being rebuilt. It was rebuilt, but you remember what happened when they rebuilt the temple, famously? Well, the people had seen the original temple and stood there and cried. Right. While the other people were rejoicing. So you have the younger people are like, yay, we rebuilt the temple. And the people who, the older people had seen Solomon's temple before it was destroyed were weeping because they realized, we thought this might be it, and it's not it. Right? It's not even as good as the first one. Plus, they didn't have the glory cloud. Plus, the gl there's no mention of the, of the glory cloud of the Lord ever in inhabiting the rebuilt temple, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, this temple isn't the same as the temple of Herod, right? That was uh, a different temple. So, the, and the people are still under the old covenant, right? And what was the great problem with the old covenant? Well, sinful hearts. 
Yeah, it provided you a certain type of cleansing, right? But the blood of goats and calves could not take away sin. It provided you with with a the presence of God in the temple, but there was walls and curtains and intermediaries. It provided you with the law of God on tablets of stone, but not the ability to keep it in the heart. So there was there was limitations with the old covenant. It's not that it was bad, but it was never designed to be the final thing, right? Rather, it was designed to point forward to it. So the people are still under the old covenant. They renew their commitment to keep the old covenant, but where's the new covenant? that Jeremiah talked about, right? So there certainly is, it's like it provides a little foretaste, right? Out of exile, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, but it's not the full thing. And so it would sort of wet their whistle of what it would be like, the prophetic hope, but and prefigured it in certain ways, but clearly was not the final deal, right? So when you get to the New Testament, what you see is that what was prefigured in Ezra and Nehemiah comes to pass in the New Testament. So the New Testament announces, like I always tell you, imagine trumpets blaring, this is it. So you, you do have a Davidic king coming who is installed at God's right hand and has begun to have all of his enemies put under his feet, and his reign will extend to the ends of the earth. This is what the prophets were talking about. So the Messiah comes. The Davidic kingdom is restored. Now, it's not like what the Israelites thought. They thought he was going to come in. Like Remember like when he was going toward Jerusalem, you had James and John arguing about who was going to sit on his right and his left in his administration, right? They're thinking, this is it. This is part of why they were so disillusioned when he was arrested and is that they were disappointed. Like, what happened, right? So, but, and yet it was the king, it was the kingdom, the restored kingdom, but it was different than what they expected. It was, it was actually greater than what they had expected. And then you have the new covenant. We all know Jesus holding up the cup at the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews chapter 8 indicates that he is the mediator of a better covenant than the old. And then he quotes the new covenant passage from Jeremiah 31. So the implication is Jesus has established that new covenant. So what are the promises, the better promises of the new covenant? They shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity, remember their sin no more. I will write my law upon their heart. Okay, so this is what Israel needed. This is why they they so quickly went back to the old ways because they were still under the old covenant, but now a new covenant with regeneration and full and final forgiveness has been established. The church, it's interesting you say, well, what about the rebuilt temple? Well, you do see a temple being built in the New Testament, don't you? Except it's not of brick and, and stone, right? And there's no walls and curtains, what you see is this. In Ephesians chapter 2, you see, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So the curtain has been torn. That old model that was the Solomonic temple has been removed. We don't need the walls. We don't need the curtains. Now, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in our very hearts and in our midst so that the people of God become a temple. And notice, they are being built, right? 1 Peter 2, we're all like living stones in the spiritual house, right? So it is a rebuilt temple. It's not like what they thought, but it was far greater. It's, a, it's an intimacy with God, a dwelling in his presence that's greater than anything they could have ever imagined. And then you have a new Jerusalem as well. So Hebrews chapter 12 is where you see it. There's multiple places, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, I just want to point out, you have this description of the heavenly Jerusalem, right? Paul talks about it in Galatians 4, it's talked about in Revelation 21. Who is there? Christ is there. The angels are there. And who else is there? Already. God. Okay, God is there. But it says the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So believers who have died are already there in this glorious assembly in the presence of God in the new heavenly Jerusalem. And then we on earth, we're like, what do we have to do with that, right? Well, he says, you have come too, right? The new Jerusalem. You say, well, how can that be? Well, do you remember what Paul said at the end of Philippians 3? He said, you know, your citizenship is in heaven. That Yeah, we're citizens of the city. The city is there and we'll go there when we die. But right now we have a citizenship. We belong there, right? But we're like sent out as ambassadors right now. One day we will go home. And then what happens at the end of the age? What does it describe the New Jerusalem doing? Coming down out of out of heaven to earth, except it's not the old order, right? It's a new heavens and the new earth, right? And by the way, what shape is that city? A cube, which is very interesting that in the symbolic vision of the city, it's designed like a cube because there was a cube in the Old Testament. You guys have heard me say this before, and that was the Holy of Holies. And the writer makes clear to say there's no temple in this city, right? Because why? It's, it's all a temple. It's one big holy of holies. It's filled with the presence of God with no curtains, no walls, no distance, right? And so there's a sense in which temple and Jerusalem and new creation all sort of merge together. And so what, you know, the rebuilding of the temple that left them crying, it was like a way of saying, yeah, God will do something greater. In fact, the prophet Haggai, you remember, had said this. He said, the glory of that latter house will be greater even than Solomon's temple, right? And th this is true. 
And then finally, a return out of exile. Isn't it interesting that in Hebrews chapter 11, listen to what it says, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. Just remember this. We've talked about this before. He talked about Abraham and Sarah. And he says in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And if you go down a little bit further, you see he describes it as a, a city whose foundations were built without hands uh, by God himself, essentially. And when you, when you think about that, a heavenly country, a city built by God, and then in the next chapter, he talks about the New Jerusalem. You see, he's describing believers, and, and it goes throughout this passage, and then he wraps up all of us as believers as living as exiles on the earth. So there's a sense in which that return out of exile, there was a foretaste of it under Cyrus, right? But the ultimate experience of it doesn't come through Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ. And there's a very real sense in which right now we have brought, gone, been brought out of exile from God, right? How, how, do you, how do you think that's happened? A foretaste of it, at least. Regeneration. Yeah. Our, our reconciliation to God. Our regeneration. Like, what Paul describes in first in Colossians one, when he says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, right? A new Exodus, a, a bringing. We were alienated from God. Now we've been brought near through the blood of Christ. So we're out of exile in terms of our relationship with God. And yet, First Peter, Hebrews still says. Yet there's a sense in which we're still exiles. We're still waiting for that day when the trumpet will sound. And the angels of God will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. And we will be taken up to be with the Lord. And we shall always be with the Lord. And he will bring us into the heavenly country, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now come down. To, you see what I'm saying? Like, that's the consummation of all these things. To which this po- pointed forward as like a, a very faint foretaste. Modeling, picturing what was to come. Reminding us that God will keep his promises. And so, I think that Ezra and Nehemiah provide us with that. It's, it's not, it's a, it ends on a downer on purpose to say something more is coming. Sort of like when you end First and Second Kings and you're like, boy, that stunk. We need a better king than that, right? Well, Ezra and Nehemiah, oh man, we need a better return out of exile than that. You know, surely the prophetic hope is yet to come. All right, well, I'll leave you there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've spent in your word. We thank you for the unity of the scriptures, the evidence of the divine mind that lies behind every book, the beauty of how it is arranged, uh, anticipating the person and work of Christ in the Old Testament unpacking the person and work of Christ in the new, pointing to how Christ has come and fulfilled the hope 
that the prophets foresaw in a now and also a not yet way. And Lord, we identify with what the writer of Hebrews says as those who have greeted the fulfillment from afar, um, that ultimate fulfillment of the return of Christ from afar, that if he doesn't return before we die, we'll die in faith as strangers and exiles on the earth, awaiting that final day. But Father, help us to learn from Ezra and Nehemiah many things, but to learn from this foretaste, this initial fulfillment of the prophetic hope that you will keep your promises. That just as you brought Israel back to the land after 70 years, as Jeremiah said, so you will do everything that you have promised in the prophets. It will all come to pass in a grand climactic way when he returns at the end of history so that we might live our lives with a certain hope and a joy that comes from knowing that these things will take place. And we pray that that joy would fill our hearts again, even this morning, and that hope would strengthen us this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.